0: If demons are real, then where do they stay?
1: Yes, demons are spirits. They're bad, and they're mean. They live inside people, but they can't be seen. Oh, yes. There will be blood oils and ghouls lock your doors and strap yourselves in from los angeles california this is the boo crew podcast horror news commentary reviews interviews and more with your hosts tim Timebaum, leone d'antonio lauren and trevor shan austin wilkin and rachel Tejada. let's go
2: Trev on behalf of the Boo Crew with episode 42. If you're listening to this the week of release, Monster Palooza is coming up in Pasadena this Friday through Sunday. This is the one you've been waiting for, Monster Kids. I know we have. It's like freaking creature Christmas! A celebration of the art of monsters and movie magic. They got sculptures, makeup demos, horror goodies for sale, celebrity signings, and more. When you're there, stop by the Boo Crew booth and say, hey, we'll have shirts for sale, pens, buttons, stickers, and postcards to give away, and some film props on display for you to check out. Tickets and info at Monsterpalooza.com com.
1: The following film has been rated R-restricted by the motion picture industry rating system. This
2: episode's guest is director, writer, and all-around genius creator of amazing things Darren Lynn Bousman. This one is so fun. Hear his truly remarkable story of how he went from getting fired off the set of X-Files to writing and directing Saw Two. Accidentally meeting Michael Rooker when he first got to Hollywood. Becoming the architect for the most incredible immersive experiences in existence like tension, lust, theater macabre, and more. Some lasting for as long as a year. Hear the creepiest set story you've ever heard, and all about his latest movie, St. Agatha, that is a must-see, available everywhere now. First, it's off to the cinema with your
1: Sinister Six. Well, who ordered pizza? I could sure go for a slice.
3: Hey, this is Darren Lynn Bousman, and you are trapped in another terrifying episode of
1: The Boo Crew. The Boo Crew, the freshest cuts of new stuff. Here's Sweet Screams. The
2: ground is bad. Guys!
1: Maybe just some crazy folk tale. But there is something up in those woods.
4: Something
2: that brings things back. Sometimes dead is better. I'm Trevor. I'm Tim. I'm Lauren. I'm Leo the cat. I'm
0: Austin.
4: (laughs) I'm Rachel. (laughs)
2: meow Pet Cemetery, released April 5th 2019 directed by Dennis Widmeyer and Kevin Kelch written by Jeff Bueller, stars Jason Clark John Lithgow Jeté Lawrence and Amy Samitz. based on the 1983 Stephen King novel that he himself said was the book that scared him the most he didn't even Mm -hmm. want to publish it in fact this is not the first time we've been beyond the deadfall though Mary Lambert turned it into a hugely successful film in 1989 with Fred Gwynn and Dale Midkiff it earned 57 $7 million dollars at that time, which was actually bigger than any Friday the 13th movie, any Elm Street movie. Child's Play, Texas Chainsaw, Halloween, or Hellraiser flick of that time. It be all of them. Wow. With inflation, it has actually sold more tickets than any zombie movie since 1980. The 2019 version came out of opening weekend with $42.5 million, number two, at the box office. Pretty amazing. And here we go. Dug up and brought back onto the screen. Let's find out if dead. Is better. Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> You've been waiting to say that. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> that is better. Does it. Does it count as a
0: zombie? I never thought about it as a zombie movie. Yeah. I guess so, yeah. huh?
4: Yeah, I never they thought were, of that they either. Were,
5: they were dead and they were reanimated. <laughs> They're zombies.
4: Yeah, yeah. That's, that's true. So
5: living dead. I'd never thought about it that way, but it absolutely is. Yeah,
6: it, I guess because it's so emotional.
5: Yeah, well, there's right. a lot of layers to Pet Cemetery too. Yeah, so yeah not definitely. only a zombie movie. Yeah, but it's also a family movie. Yeah,
0: totally. Family.
4: Yes, totally.
5: hundred yeah. percent.
0: See, I
4: thought they were ghosts. I don't know. Ghosts? No. How well, can
5: ghosts stab you?
4: I don't know. Well, the zombies can.
5: I mean, they're, they're I reanimated in, the, in in Pet Cemetery, right? Come back to life.
4: But why yeah. do I just? I just envision. I know they're not ghosts, but. Well,
2: there is, is a ghost with a, with a kid that died in the yeah, hospital. Yeah, right? true. Yes. It's but the either. ultimate ghost zombie <laughs> <Yes>. mashup of all time. But it, it,
0: yeah, I think maybe you think that because they just appear. Yes. You don't see them come back. You don't see the hand come out of the grave. They just appear
5: again.
6: I guess because they don't move like the typical zombie, particularly in this this one. They're quite
0: active. How they move. great was
5: John Lithgow? Oh
4: my Amazing. god! Amazing. Amazing.
0: I love Fred Gwynn so much. But he was great. He was perfect.
2: That was one thing that the directors were talking about at that Q&A that John Lithgow didn't even see the original movie so he's not doing like his take on Fred right. Gwynn's iconic and character. And he's friends with Fred Gwynn so yeah. he didn't want to accidentally steal anything.
5: thought he did his own great performance. Totally. And he yeah, kind of carried the in a lot of ways the movie was great. I seriously
0: forgot it was John Lithgow up there. The, whole, the cast is incredible. It's like you said Tim there's so many layers to the movie and also so many layers every character has so many layers. Yeah. And this version of it, the all the actors nailed it. There's so much going on in every character.
6: For me, this movie has like a personal closeness of fear because the character's name's Rachel, and so every time a connection <laughs> yes. with Zelda is like ah, yeah. like
2: Rachel. Yes! Ah! Yeah, I kept turning around like ah. <laughs> <laughs>
6: so yeah, so like the mom Rachel character, she did a great job. Exactly. Like all... whole
5: Zelda angle, you know. And when Zelda when Zelda
2: fell down the uh, dumb
5: oh.
7: waiter, it Dude, that fell. scared oh. the fuck out of me. That <laughs> scared fuck,
2: you know. Yeah. When I mean, the first time it, the truck, went, you know, there's a lot of Really good stuff what i think that was really interesting that happened was the fact that the major change that the directors made in this film which is revealed in the trailer that ellie the older child is the one who comes back to me it amplified the intensity a little bit of putting the lens of the source material through her eyes it just made it even more tragic if that makes sense yeah, she was yeah. able to explain think, right. you know we pictured instantly our daughter who's close to that age if that had happened, the questions that she would be able to ask as opposed to a two-year-old. Right. Yeah. You know, it makes it like, point. oh yeah. my
5: God. Yeah, more more questions about death and whatnot. Yeah. It's more um, philosophical. As you guys know, I don't watch the trailer. So I thought the little boy was going to get ran over.
4: Me too. I I'm didn't like, see oh, this man, one. Oh man, it's
5: the part I want to, you know, maybe I'll go get some popcorn. because it's, it's a sad part. Yeah. And he didn't die.
0: And they handled it. So yeah, you thought but, he was. Yeah, but she did. Yeah. Because it felt it like, it was, you but, know, there's this where he's running to the road and.
2: Yeah, they shot it with yeah. the truck looking like, oh, my God. In fact, it was like, they're both.
7: Maybe yeah. Misdirection. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're thinking, oh, shit, they're both
5: gone. That was a great like, little added thing. But the cool yeah. thing
7: was when the mom, the reveal was when she collapses on the road, and you're like, oh, you know she saw the dead body. Yeah. That's right. like, oh, man, so gut-wrenching.
0: That's right. Yeah, that was intense. Yeah, watching her, you see her first.
4: Yeah, seeing this as a parent is a really hard movie. And
2: that's why Stephen King, too, had a hard time with it because it's about the most horrifying thing that could possibly happen, which is really the death of a child. He didn't, he didn't yeah. want to release the book initially, right?
4: And I get that, you know? And then as a parent, you think, like, would you go to the pet cemetery? I think I might have. I
0: shouldn't have shown you that place. Yeah, but you did.
4: Exactly. <laughs> right? Because you're like. <laughs> I mean, right about now, I would I would put Winky there, yeah, our dog, yeah,
2: our dog, yeah, who yeah. just
4: recently passed. Right, well, yeah, if you munch. get it,
2: right, it, it asked that question if you could do that just to see whether it be a pet or, or a family member yeah. one more time, even if it, even if it's not necessarily the way they were, would you do it? I
6: don't know Like this movie
4: Yeah I know <laughs> I know I back like right. What is it telling us <laughs> <laughs> Well she was cranky anyway So I'm just like uh, totally mean the cool same cool to
5: put Like Elvis Presley In a pet cemetery <laughs> oh, oh yes And it, it comes it back quick. You know I like to hear Some good Elvis tunes <laughs> but It'd
0: but be, be like be Elvis? Angry
4: Angry Elvis yeah. tunes Yeah, maybe, yeah. Who different. knows Monk. They'd be like, yeah. be like death,
8: <laughs>
2: Elvis death metal
4: Yeah,
8: <laughs>
2: yeah Just record him Real quick Before he starts Killing everybody
7: (laughs) You know, one of the best things about this, I think, was the violence. Not that I enjoy violence, but when you see it on the screen, that's so realistic. You know who else does this really well is Rob Zombie in his Halloween movies. You're not going to get that angle where, like, the teenager stabs, you know, the killer and then runs away and throws out that one lantern. I got you, fucker, and runs away. It's like, <laughs> Ellie was just like, here you go, I'm going to stab you in the fucking gut, And you see the knife go in, and you're like, oh shit, it's brutal.
2: Well, the one thing about Dennis and Kevin, who directed this movie, is they are not afraid of gore. If you see <laughs> yeah. Starry Eyes, yeah. which Tim, yeah. you, right? Yeah, the story. apartment scene? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, a, like the Gore
5: Olympics.
8: <laughs> <laughs> no, I
5: dig their style, then They're cool. They're fun,
2: though. You can tell they're having fun. So the star of Starry Eyes is Alex Esso, and she's actually playing Wendy Torrance in Dr. Sleep. Oh. That's a great cast. Yeah. I didn't know that. So the world of Dennis and Kevin is spreading. <sighs> Within the Stephen King universe.
7: Uh, one of the crazy themes, obviously you're looking at grieving, right, death? how you explain death, especially to a young one, you know. But I was thinking that, of course, going back to the novel and the first movie and now this movie. If you look at the side plot of the whole Zelda character and that whole thing's about guilt. There's a lot you don't that happened off camera in the past that you don't see where it's like she had to take care of her sister and she turned times that she did not take care of her. That came back to haunt her in a big time way. People can relate to that kind of thing. It's like you live with that guilt and sometimes that haunts you. I mean I was really curious I'm like I wonder where King came up with that. Did he have a personal situation that was kind of related to that? If he only
0: wrote about personal situations he's got a hell of a backstory. Yeah right.
8: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay. No What was your take on this versus the 1989 movie that gave us nightmares forever?
0: It did a great job. Great job.
2: Ah.
6: (laughs) Yes, it was awesome.
0: Yeah, I thought this was fantastic. It stands alone. They're two different movies.
5: Two different fuel, two different vibes, two different tempos, two different...
0: They speak to two different times, too. I feel like the, when was it, 89? Mm Mm-hmm. That was very much I mean I haven't seen it Recently I don't know if it holds up This felt very contemporary It didn't feel like It was connected to anything It felt like it's Uh, own thing Right Really great
4: That's a good way to put it Yeah So in the 1989 version Ellie is played by twins And in this version Gage is played by twins They had five cats Originally playing church But then one wasn't cooperating So then it went down to four And they each got their own trailers And their like handlers Got trailers Two I think the people that train them took two, right.
2: Yeah, that's right. yeah, they ended up adopting them. So two more are available.: Screen used cats. That's our next <laughs> like we said yeah. thing. They
5: kind of um, train the cats for the job, right?: Yeah, like they figure out what these cats they're, they're untrained when they start the movie. That's how I understood it. kind of hired and then they're trained. The specialty, do you want the cat that stares at you evil,
8: (laughs) right? Right, which one? Which one? (laughs) Is that
2: the one to adopt? And do they respond to the directors, or is the trainers off you know, off the side yelling the direction, right? You know what I mean? It's gotta be the trainer, I think. (laughs) And Zelda was played by a man in the 1989 film, yes.
6: One of the scariest parts of the pest cemetery, this new one, was when Gage was crying at towards the end. And the mother didn't know why. Rachel didn't know why. Oh. You get to see his perspective of what he's crying at, which is basically the ghost, the dead student. And I thought that was amazing how they incorporated his perception into it because it wasn't that, that way in the first one.
7: Or the right. or Victor Pascal.
6: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I like that switch that maybe, you know, he had some impact or it carried on some legacy.
0: you guys think that Judd took his wife there? You know, it's a good question. During the film, I thought he did because, right. because of what Ellie's saying. Right. But then, is that just the demon teasing him? Is it real or is it not real?
2: I somehow thought that he did and then had to kill her. Because he was like, that doesn't come back quite normal. It sounded like he was talking from experience. Like, I've been through this.
7: And is that why he has the gun? Good uh, yeah, it's a good
2: question. He also had a rifle on the wall. Yes, not surprised he didn't use that.
0: I expected her to take him to the burial ground, but she didn't. The body was just, she'd left it there. So if it was the wife, then would she have taken it there the way she took her mom there? I mean if the wife was part of the whole thing because it wasn't ellie right it's the it was the demon the wendigo
4: i also wonder when ellie felt rejected that's when she started to become evil When she felt rejection from her mom, who was just like, this can't be. Right. And when we just talked about him, (laughs) when he was upset that she was alive, that's when she started to feel animosity towards him. That's when she started to switch. But like she spent the whole night with her dad and nothing happened. She could have killed him.
2: So yeah, if you bring something back from the pet cemetery don't piss it off.
4: Exactly. (laughs) Then you'll be fine. You'll be fine. They'll just look dirty. (laughs) Their eye might be a little wonky. Yeah,
7: stuff falling out of their hair. Do you guys think that these people coming back from the dead are coming back from hell? Mm -hmm. I ask that because, like, there's no mention of God. There is a crucifix in the scene, though. They
0: don't define heaven or hell, but it's definitely not a happy place.
2: The evil place. Right, when you get buried up there, it ain't good. Well, I'd say this is one movie you gotta bury yourself in.
1: (gasps) (laughs)
8: Ah! A- <laughs>
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's intermission time. You now have minutes to stock up on the tasty treats offered at our refreshment stand.
6: Your pain only brings you closer to him.
4: There is no wrong or right in this place. They're just choosing not to see it. I think they lied to me about my baby. They told me he was dead. We all have to work together on getting out of here now.
6: Your continued meddling will bring them nothing but pain. You are immoral, corrupt, and vile. I rename you Agatha.
1: Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy.
2: Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is a story director, writer, producer, and dreamer of unforgettable experiences. He is responsible for turning James Wan and Lee Whannell's film Saw into an unstoppable franchise. Serving as a creative father of Saw 2, literally changing the game for the series and developing the most unforgettable traps and puzzles that defined it. He has made history as the first horror director to ever have have his first three feature films open at number one with the addition of saw three and four he went on to make a stunning and ambitious dark and whimsical musical 2008's repo the genetic opera the ride continued with mother's day 11 11 11 the barons a comic book miniseries and accompanying film abattoir another series of horror musicals with the devil's carnival in 2016 he transformed the landscape of immersive theater with a project called the tension experience a complete world within itself that gives each audience member its own singular and unforgettable experience last months. His latest film, St. Agatha, is available to stream and on demand, we are honored to welcome the architect and true game changer of the horror experience, Darren Lynn Bousman.
3: Yeah. Can uh can you follow me wherever I go? Just make, that, <laughs> make that introduction when I walk into room. <laughs> only half of what you said, and I was that cool. But I promise to underwhelm everyone listening. <laughs> <laughs> I
8: apologize.
2: Come on. Well, thank you, man, so much for taking the time to be here with us. Uh,
3: I, I for those listening, I'm still kind of in shock. I'm uh I just got the tour of the place, and I uh is being a horror lover and horror fan. It's it's literally like a church of. I can't even describe it. It's amazing. So I'm honored to be here.
4: Aw, thank you.
3: Seriously blushing right now, that's incredible.
4: (laughs) I mean, mean, just
3: looking at your keyboards and your mouses, it enrages me. Because, like, if I... I was talking about this with someone earlier today. I think people have an assumption about... I'm a horror director and i made horror movies. I live in, like, a pretty cottage house with a white picket fence and two fluffy dogs And uh, it's the opposite of what I thought my life was going to be like. (laughs) I I have my wife gave me a broom closet and she's like, here, it's yours. Do whatever you want. And so my entire horror collection is packed into a small shoebox. Well, there's, you know, uh, what we found is uh, with Lauren and I, anyway, there's
2: a danger sometimes of having two people. Who don't say no to each other when it comes to that stuff, right? Because there's no filter, right? There's no
4: end. Nobody says this is a bad idea. Right. (laughs) It's always a good idea and it's probably not the best idea sometimes. The
3: (laughs) only thing my wife says to me is no, so it's uh, it's kind of the opposite. uh, opposite Well, we're going to start off as we do, and that's at the very beginning, with the first memorable experience that you had with the genre. My parents were really cool when I was growing up and they would always let me go see what I wanted to see, there was never really a weird like, other oh, movie's PG thirteen, you can't go see it. To a point, my dad wouldn't take me to go see porn, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to come back to that because the, 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 I, I did see Cannibal Holocaust at a way too young age. Yeah, um, but I remember one of my first earliest memories is my father and I. Uh, every time Elvira had something new out, we would go. He would take me to go see it, and uh, this is back in the day when Blockbuster was a thing. And uh, I remember you when you, as a kid, you would go to Blockbuster and you would look at the boxes. That's how you decided. There was yeah. no there was no IMDb. You didn't know what shit was about. And you'd pick a box. And of course, uh, Elvira spoke to me from a, from a, a many different reasons.
8: <laughs> yes, or yes,
3: her, her bust. But um, it was dark and it was macabre and it looked fun at the same time. But that led me to Gremlins and Ghoulies and Critters and those movies that the boxes just immediately looked fun. And it was in that kind of early introduction that my brother, who is much older than me, it saw this love and horror and he goes i'm going to show you the real shit Worst mistake of my life because it was a, it was a double feature of Henry Porter of a serial killer Ooh. and Cannibal oh. Holocaust. Whoa, jeez, um, oh, and uh, holy, yeah, that that fucked my... and I, I mean, that really screwed me up. How old were you? I don't remember, but I way too young to see it. I mean, okay. it must have been ten or eleven. But I sh- it's something I probably shouldn't have been watching at that age. But those movies led me to then seek out the more extreme films. I remember one of my very early memories was was Last House on the Left, which is again not something I recommend for someone that young. Yeah. But I, I tell you, it had such a, a lasting impact because it, it's like a roller coaster. You remember that feeling that when your gut drops, most films don't do that. Most films, you laugh, you smile, you whatever, and you forget about them. But these movies stuck with me. I mean, here I am as a 40-year-old man still remembering Cannibal Holocaust and how the feelings like of just utter disgust and rage <laughs> hit me in those films. A fun side note to the story, though, of Henry Porter he of a Serial Killer being my first kind of real mainstream experience in horror Michael Rooker became my first friend moving to Los Angeles.
8: No! By by coincidence?
3: Yeah. Or did you seek him out for some sort of therapeutic?
0: (laughs) Okay, so this is
3: a story I don't think I've ever told before and I hope he doesn't get mad for me telling it. So one of my very good friends, the first guy I ever cast in any short film that I did was a guy named Jay LaRose. Jay LaRose has been in 95% of everything I've done, but he was also in Insidious. He was uh, one of the demons in Insidious. He has been in a ton of TV shows. In fact, he just got cast in a big TV show that I I probably can't announce, but he's, he's, he's seen a lot. You would know him if you saw him. Anyway, I cast him in my first short film and I'm in Florida. I'm in Orlando, Florida. He's a very unique look. He's really tall. Kind of undefinable in his nationality. My script said I wanted a middle-aged white man, and he is the opposite of that. I think he's part Japanese, but he looks kind of Native American. We formed this amazing friendship, and um, I rewrote the entire role for him. And he was one of those guys that just supported me all throughout my film school career in the way of encouraging me to write, encouraging me to not give up. So I shot this short film called Butterfly Dreams, and he was the lead of it. We finished the movie. And I say finished it. I ran out of money. I said, it's done. I showed it to Jay. His name is Jay. And I said, Jay, here it is. And the sound was so terrible. Like this is way before we had access to like really good sound equipment and it was terrible. And he goes, you mind if I show this to my brother-in-law? I think he'd like it. And I said, sure. And he didn't know at that point who he was talking about. And about maybe 48 hours later, I get a phone call and it's Michael Rooker. It's so all, so all that fucking movie, and the sound is terrible. We got to fix that. You're coming out to Sony, and I'm going to pay for your sound.
8: <gasps> and, uh, he, uh,
3: he got a two days in a sound stage at Sony Studios that he, he's paid for. Got us a sound mixer, and, and uh, had our film finished. And that was how I met Michael Rooker, and we've just stayed in touch ever since then. And it's just been a, he's been one of the just one of those hilarious, fun character like people.
2: Yeah uh, Wow So that's
3: how I met Michael Rook.
2: Did you ever tell him Like hey I saw
3: Henry Portrait? Oh, yeah. I was like 10 yeah, That's fucked up Your brother shouldn't have done that uh, So uh Yeah And he's uh I remember a funny story About Michael was uh I went to his house One afternoon And uh He had a, a younger daughter And as I, as I came in Michael is wearing A gun holster The gun's not in it But he's wearing a gun holster And he's walking around And he's screaming At his at his wife Where's the photocopy machine I gotta get this thing done And he's not looking at me And he's running around He's got this piece of paper and I finally see what he's copying and right when I can make out what it is there's a knock at the door and he goes answer the door and there's a kind of a timid shy kid there that was there to date his daughter Oh and this my was a God. this what he was copying was a questionnaire to date his daughter and no so when the guy way. showed in when the guy showed up Michael sat him down Put the thing in front of him Handed him a pen And just stood there And stared at him now, Again remember He's got a gun yeah, holster he's got on him. The-
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Now ironically Those two people Got married The, the daughter do- oh, Years later oh. But but that's just how Awesome and insane
4: He wow, is Wow are you taking notes <laughs> That's a great Yeah yeah exactly Yeah, <laughs> Later on Yeah
2: our daughter yeah. Just turned 10 So I'm getting ready For uh, the dating
3: thing Eventually I think I Years I, get, a, get a questionnaire <laughs> Is the takeaway
2: yeah,
3: I, <laughs> I just can't imagine The intimidation factor Of being there And standing there With Rooker With a questionnaire That just uh, and a holster and a holster. Yeah. Or just, just Rooker on his own is enough right. Rooker for me oh my god that was my first celebrity encounter in los angeles the first time i would met anyone like that and specifically someone that i'd met and i grew up admiring their work and having that kind of pivotal impact on me because it's one of those movies that even today it's not an easy movie to watch and it's one of those movies that got under my skin and it's a movie that i revisit again and again and i always like try to figure out what is about the movie that made me uncomfortable what was it about it Because blood doesn't make me uncomfortable, violence doesn't, that doesn't make me uncomfortable. But it was his portrayal. I mean, it was, it was just this weird, demented love affair with this woman that he was in love with, but he was also a serial killer. It was an important movie for me, I think, as a filmmaker.
2: You ended up revisiting one of my all-time favorite horror movies. And I know Lauren really likes this, too. I don't know if you guys have seen yes. Charles Kaufman's Mother's Day, yep. right? You know, your version, it stood on its own. You can't even really compare the two besides a few inside references. Yep. Do
3: you remember the first time you saw Mother's Day? Did it have that effect on you no. at all? or No, and I, I it's funny... I'm a huge Troma fan. One of the things that as I was growing up as a kid and knew that I wanted to be a filmmaker is I would seek out trying to talk to people that inspired me or people that I had made some sort of impact on me. And I I remember seeking out Lloyd Kaufman's number and he's a very easy guy to get a hold of. And so I think I called him maybe after I saw, it would have been before Tromeo and Juliet. I remember what it was, but I reached out to them and I talked to them and he said, Hey, if you ever want to come to New York, want to do whatever and get an internship, let me know. I I know a guy who knows a guy that can get you an internship here. So I had always been a fan of the Troma catalog. I obviously remember Mother's Day and and fond memories of it, but it was not a film that I actively sought to do. And I I think one of my I was attached to three remakes back to back to back, and I had bad experiences with all of them. Scanners, Hellraiser, and Children of the Corn. I was attached to all of those at one point, kind oh. of consecutively, and uh, none of them happened. So then I had this script called Wichita that was a true crime story, one of the most horrific true crime stories you will ever hear, but no one would make it. And we, we went everywhere with it. It was a story about these two brothers who rob a house on Christmas Eve, and there's a party going on downstairs, and they don't realize there's a party going on downstairs, and the hostage situation. Sue's Brett Ratner calls me one afternoon and says, I got the rights to Mother's Day, but I have to make it in, I forget, six weeks, eight weeks. You had to, you had to go to prep. And, and I said, I don't have a script. And I was like, and also, I don't know how to remake that movie. And I think that for me, every movie after Mother's Day that came out was borrowing from it. The Hillbillies in the Woods. The, and they, the, how could you remake that movie or do it better than they did back then? Brett and I got started talking and I was pitching him Wichita. And he goes, wait a minute, what if we took that movie, Wichita... But we added those iconic things of Mother's Day. Oh. And uh, immediately when he said it, it clicked because you already had Ike and Adley as the characters, which we had two brothers. But the minute you added that mother in there, it added such a more dynamic feel to it. It was
7: Rebecca the Morning, right? Yeah. It's, and so amazing.
3: I met with Rebecca, and uh, that was it. The minute that I met with Rebecca, I was like, she can do this and kill it. And it's great. What I love about that film is there's something like 25 original lines from the original film. Put in there and dialogue that most people will miss, meaning we took actual lines from their script and concepts. And I think we were able to execute it. I mean, even the idea of Queenie is in there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So obviously I was a huge fan of the film, but it was one of the things that I said very early on was I won't redo it until I meet with Lloyd and Charles both. And I want their blessing. When I was attached to Scanners, I said the same thing and they let me meet Cronenberg and he was like, absolutely not, that's a terrible idea and that's not gonna, ha-. and I was like, I'm done. I'm not touching it at that point. I wanted to make sure I had their blessing. I remember sitting with those two guys, they're clowns. Yeah. Guys- <laughs> <laughs>
8: hilarious dude.
3: And they said, it sounds great. And I said, I just want to, I don't want to redo what you did. I want to take the concepts you introduced and take them in a completely different direction. They were both cool and they showed up on set for four days and just acted like goofs and it was awesome. So many
2: of those movies are really lightning trapped in a bottle and are so much of a product of limitations at the time and what they had to work with. And they just make that magic out of having to innovate or come up with things on the fly. And you can't recreate that spirit.
3: No. And I've heard Lloyd speak in numerous situations and I I just admire. And I think that same reason I admire someone like Corman is that they have all these things going against them and they said fuck it we're just going to make a movie Mm. however that is we're going to have guys in rubber suits and we're going to throw by. we don't care we're going to make a movie and we're not going to wait for permission and I've taken that kind of into my career, that just doing it and not waiting.
2: I know you've probably talked about this a million times, but I want to hear the story from you. Take us back to the early 2000s and how a script you were working on called The Desperate really ended up changing your life.
3: This would never work today. What I'm about to tell you, don't listen to it. Don't try to do this. It will not work. So the story of the writing of The Desperate, I'm going to tell a different side of the story Mm. because I've told The Desperate story, but this is a cool part I haven't talked about as much. Oh, cool. So a little background is when I first moved to L.A., I was cast, or I was hired on X Files when it was still in L. A. It was when what's his name Robert Pat was it Robert the when, when Robert Patrick Robert Patrick yeah. was on it. It was a horrible job. I, I didn't like it. I was working 19 hours a day. I was a PI on set. It was it was it was miserable. I was miserable because I thought I was going to come to L. A. and I thought I was going to be a director. I mean, I just thought in my stupid Kansas brain where I was from, I was like, oh, it's going to be so easy. They're going to unlock the door to me when I get here. But that didn't happen. So I spent years getting coffee and laundry. And then I think, oh, I'm on X-Files. Awesome. Like, like they're going to ask me for my fucking opinion on anything. <laughs> I, was getting, I was getting coffee and donuts. And, and I remember one night, I, I just kind of snapped. I was watching the director, who I thought was a complete just idiot. I got mad. And I started thinking, what would I do? How? I am so desperate right now. What would I do to, to accomplish my dream? And I pulled out my laptop, and I started writing, and I just wrote The Desperate, meaning me, The Desperate. And I exaggerated what people would do in a desperate situation. So I started writing the script. Now I'm going to cut to the other side of the story, which I haven't told. I was fired from X-Files. Um, I fell asleep. I was supposed to be locking down the set. A bunch of homeless encampment people walked in the middle of the shot. Oh, Robert no. Patrick freaked out and goes, who the, f-? I remember, who the fuck's walking, locking down this set? And everyone pointed to me and I'm sleeping in a corner with my oh. laptop. Oh.
8: <laughs> I get fired.
3: I ended up at a place called, at that time, APA. And then eventually it led to the firm. So I was an assistant on managers' desks and agents' desks, and I learned the process of how a movie gets made. And I realized that it's not the agents at all, it's the assistants. Because the agents get 100 submissions, and the assistants read the script, and then will say to the agent, yes, I consider this or pass on it. An assistant's job is to basically pass, because if you say, I recommend to an agent, and they don't like it, that's on you. So your safe bet to stay in, a, in an assistant job back then was to pass on things. And so when something actually got to consider, meaning, hey, you should consider this script, it meant it was good. So so I had become friends with a lot of assistants, and I it was still finishing the script, The Desperate, and I was watching these terrible movies sell. And so I made a fake management and lawyer company up with a fake voicemail and a fake email address. So the email address worked. We would call it, and it would be a friend of mine being like, you've reached so-and-so agency. You've reached so-and-so legal. And so I made this up, and I made Letterhead up. <laughs> and I asked three friends to take a look, and the script wasn't finished, but I said three friends to take a kind of look at what I was writing and to write fake coverage for me. And so these three friends from very big agencies wrote coverage as strongly consider. I wrote fake coverage under a different name, and I wrote the script under a different name. So ne- my name was never on the script. And so I came into work one day, and I said, I just read this most insane script, and I gave the coverage at the same time the friends gave the coverage to their bosses. <laughs> this is brilliant. <laughs> and, and, this is and,
4: so and, awesome. And,
3: um, people started bidding on a script that didn't exist. Um, I remember, oh, and the, the, it wow. started off very small. The offers were very small. Then it was, we want to meet the writer. And so phone calls started coming in. And I remember the girl's name, Elisa Diaz, was the one that was uh, another assistant that was helping me in this ridiculous con. And so what happened was this, the traction started to come and there was like this hot, there was a hot new script that everyone had to get, but it wasn't a real script. And that motivated me to finish the movie. To finish it, we submitted the script to a couple of the places and it worked. Luckily, the script was written well enough to pass the bullshit test. And one of the people it got to was Mark Berg, who was or actually Greg Hoffman, who is one of the producers of Saw. Saw had not been released yet. It had been shot. I think it had just gone to Sundance, but it had not been released yet. And they were looking for their follow-up movie. And at that time, they were looking to make The Desperate as like a one million dollar, not a sequel, their next film. Like the like Blumhouse. It was like their next Franchise. And so it started with getting that call from Twisted Pictures saying, We want to make this as our follow up to Saw, a new franchise. But when Saw then started to pick up steam and became popular, Lionsgate had a mandate. We need a sequel now, immediately. And so they took The Desperate, which had a twist in it, had a serial killer in it, and they asked if we could adapt it to Saw too. God, I don't know how it happened, but I got attached to direct it. After literally doing nothing, I had never directed shit in my life. Some bad short films, a really terrible music video, and I'm next thing I know I'm on a plane to Toronto to direct Saw Two. Wow! wow. <laughs> all based on a series of lies. Right? Oh my
8: gosh!
3: <laughs> now again, like I said, that couldn't happen. Now you would Google, you would reverse number, you do all that, but but back in that that moment of time when this all happened, you couldn't do that. The internet wasn't as powerful as it was now, so you could. You could con someone as long as you have other people helping you a little bit. And what I love about my story is the fact that it's my story and it would never work again. And I think what that excites me about Hollywood is everyone has these insane stories about how they got there, how they got their first big break. And people always ask me for advice. Like, what is your advice? There is no advice. Whatever worked for me will not work for you. And the same thing that work for you. I could never do. It's fascinating. It's one of the first things I always ask people that have, that I'm, how did you, what was the way in? And you always hear that story about Spielberg, whether it's true or not, jumping off the back of a... The, the tram and just setting up a fake office for him. So I love those type of stories. And hopefully in, uh, you know, in 20 or 30 years, a story about me lying about a script. <laughs> <that is not laughs> <horrendous>. It'll be <laughs> a movie. It'll be a movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it feels like exist. a movie. <laughs> it's a great story. so
4: creative and amazing and that it worked is just, it's yeah. so amazing. Well, it's
0: fun because it's the Hollywood con. Mm-hmm. It and is. The similarity between you and Spielberg in this sense is that you both had the talent to back it up. That's yeah. the real advice is be good.
3: Well, <laughs> it's not the con, the con gets you through the door, but you know, yeah. the, the talent keeps you there. I think that, uh, before that I'd had a, I used to write a blog series called what they don't teach you in film school. Yeah. And I, it basically is how I got from, you know, literally being fired off of everything I ever worked on to being on saw two. One of the things I did early on in my career is um, you're in a field to try to be creative. And most people try to get jobs are not creative in their approach to get the job. And I remember this is back in the day of Mandy Jobs where everyone was like, and there there were blind submissions. You never knew where you were submitting to. It'd say something like, looking for an executive assistant, fax this number. I would fax the number and I would never hear anything back. After 100 submissions, 200 submissions, I just broke inside. And I said, if I want a job, I got to be creative in trying to get the job. And so I remember one of the first things I did and this was one of the coolest jobs I ever had. A Mandy Jobs post said looking for an executive assistant to a high powered profile producer. Just a number but that was it. I reversed number search the number and found that it was a company called Synergy Pictures. Synergy Pictures used to be Carol Co. which is run by Mario Kassar. Mario Kassar did every big action movie in the 80s that you've ever seen. He was the guy from the Die Hard franchise to Rambo to Stargate to Basic Instinct. Like he was the, the, the episode, he was like the Jerry Bruckheimer of the 80s. And when I found out that it was coming from Carol Co., I called Carol Co. and I said, Hey, I was on the phone with Human Resources and I got disconnected during my interview. And there was a long pause and she said, Oh, oh, for Mario, uh, one second, I'll patch you. And now I knew the name Mario. And so I, I found Mario at Carol Co. Pictures as Mario Kassar. So once I knew that, I hired a telegram service and it was like a singing telegram to show up with a refrigerator box and I would bought a refrigerator box. And I put my resume in the bottom of the refrigerator box packed full of nonsense confetti and styrofoam penis. And all that was in it was just my resume. And I, I got a phone call maybe two hours after it had gone through and it was an assistant. And she was equal parts enraged and laughing. And she was like, I got to meet the guy that went through the trouble to send a refrigerator box full of styrofoam penis that I spent hours cleaning up. And I was hired the next day to be Mario Kassar's assistant. Um, and so I learned then that you have to be creative. You want to be in a profession that, that is about creativity. you got to be creative in everything you do. And that includes selling your first screenplay. You have to be creative. When I went to film school, I was not the most talented guy in my film school. There, there was 75% of them were more talented than me. I think the difference, what I've learned, and again, one of the things that I have learned throughout my career is, It is thinking outside the box and perseverance, where a lot of my friends who had much better directing reels than myself come out here and they would give up. They would be fired. They wouldn't get a job. They would be humiliated. And after a year of it, they would give up. I never gave up. I just kept saying, you know what? Fuck it. I'm doing it again. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. And each time I would change the method in which I was trying. And I think that's hints That's what they don't teach you in film school. You're kind of taught. You have a resume. You put this on your resume. You do this. You're very professional and prim and proper. And I said, I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to do it. And so every single time I literally had a chart about what I did last time. Okay, well, I faxed it and that's how I'm not going to, I'm going to hand deliver it. Well, that didn't work. Now I'm going to sing a telegram. Well, that just pisses people off. Well, I'm going to add a refrigerator box to the singing telegram. (laughs) And and, uh, I just changed it a little bit each time and and you realize what works for you. And so that I credit the, uh, maybe my insanity.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So you had directed the stage play of a story called Repo, the genetic opera back in 2002. When was it time to turn that into your next film project when you're in the middle of the saw
3: world from the very beginning so i directed repo long before the saw films ever happened and uh a long story short on that was uh i was a huge musical fan and and uh i i went to college i majored in theater originally i thought i was going to be an actor i decided that it was the cr- i loved creating i thought it was like creating people but i like creating worlds so i said i'm not going to act i want to do the the world building things the writing the directing But I always found my fondest memories of my adolescence through middle school and high school as uh, West Side Story, Jesus Christ Superstar, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Those are the things that defined who I was as a person, specifically Rocky Horror. And so when I got to Hollywood, one of my first passions was musicals, musical theater. This guy came up to me who I had met with a bunch of agents trying to get an agent off this shitty reel that I was telling you. It was bad. My reel was terrible. Uh, He asked me, you know, if I could do anything in the world, what would it be? And I said, I want to direct a musical. And he goes, well, luck is on your side because I got a musical right here on my desk and he had this libretto that was maybe 50 pages and a four song CD sampler is all it was. And uh, the, the two co-creators, Darren Smith and Terrence Zadunich, had sent blind submissions out to everyone and they had sent him this musical. And he said, you, you're happy to, to, to read the libretto and uh, take the CD with you. And so I listened to the music and it was four songs. And immediately when I finished it, I called the two guys and I said, listen, you don't know me, but just just meet me for coffee. And so I met them for coffee, and I said, I want to direct this thing. And they asked what my experience was, and I said, none. And they said, well, why should you do it? And I, I said, I probably shouldn't do it, but <laughs>
8: I was like, that'd be awesome.
3: And uh, we clicked, and I directed the first Black Box stage production of it, which was on Hollywood Boulevard back in... 2001, maybe 21 years old, and I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew I loved the music. It was supposed to be open like two or three nights. It was supposed to be a weekend engagement, and it sold out immediately. And we ended up staying open like four weeks. And it was very culty, it was very ridiculous, over the top. And I remember on the last night of performance of it, I said, If I ever make it as a director, I'm doing this. I'm making this a movie. And I think they kind of like, Yeah, sure you are. I got Saw Two, and one of the first phone calls I made after I got Saw Two was them. And I said, I told you, I'm coming for you guys. Uh, they they still didn't believe it and um, then when Saw 3 happened I had clout that I could make what I wanted to make and so I went into Lionsgate and Lionsgate you know was like what do you want to do next and I said repo and they said no
8: <laughs>
3: and I said no I want to do repo next and that time Saw 4 was about to hit and I was like I'll do Saw 4 but I want to do repo they let me do repo and so I called them back again I said hey guys guess what oh Oh shit, I totally forgot this But I'm going to bring it full circle Before I went into Lionsgate and told him I wanted to do it I went out and shot a short film And in that short film, I cast Michael Rooker as Repo Man (laughs) It still still has never been seen publicly But I cast Michael Rooker as Repo Man And then I brought that into Lionsgate And I said, this is what I want to make next And And then Repo got made after that it was just a crazy thing is making promises to these two guys because I love their stuff and I was able to get it made.
2: And Repo, I got to say, the look of it is beautiful. Yeah. The
3: costumes are incredible. Stunning. Liesl DeLaurier, is that how to say her name? Liesl, yeah. Liesl did a bunch of movies with me. She was one of the art directors on it. She did all the Saw movies as well. I shot, I think, five movies back to back in Toronto and I had the same crew that basically went with me from, from film to film, but I introduced somebody new in Repo named Joseph White, and if you look for the name Joe White, you'll see him on all my films from this point on. He's the cinematographer. Him and I very quickly met with the production designer and art department team, and I said, at that moment, Dick Tracy was a huge inspiration for me. I loved Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy. I loved the look. And if you watch Dick Tracy now and watch Repo, you'll see a lot of similarities. It was the characters were over the top they had crazy faces and wore crazy costumes, but the lighting was flamboyant. It was bright neon yellows and pinks. The DP was a man by the name of Storaro, and we used his color palette, the Storaro color palette, in all of Repo, all the Devil's Carnival, all the Devil's Carnival 2, in St. Agatha, and it's the same DP. And so it's it's just like that very almost fairy tale look in yeah. the lighting that I absolutely <coughs> love. How did you do the hallway in the Wallace's estate? Yeah. You have those like
2: hologram yeah. pictures on the sides. And then it looks like there's one at the end of the hall
3: with maybe an actress inside the portrait. It almost looks yeah. like a shadow box effect. What is that? It's exactly, it's exactly what you said it was. We had a green screen. And it reminds me, it's funny, because your whole aesthetic in here reminds me of the Wallace household. Right, that's what I saw. Uh, and I was I like, know. oh,
2: my God, this speaks to me.
3: <laughs> it <is. laughs> yeah, it was uh, the thing which I was very lucky in my first four films, which have never been repeated since, as I was able to shoot everything on a soundstage, which is a filmmaker that's huge because your level of control is so much greater versus shooting on location. We built everything on uh repo. We built every set, the opera, the Wallace household, everything was built. Uh, Roddy's office. It was an insane experience because I, I remember one of the first days I got there and this was my first passion project. I've made a couple passion projects, but this is the first one. And I remember walking in the sound stage when it was our first day of filming and the lights were there and the fog was going and there's fire burning everywhere. And we had these fire pots. And everything was there and you could, it was so big, you could drive a car through it. In fact, we (laughs) did drive cars through it, uh, things you see in a graveyard. Like you can literally drive a car through the soundstage, through the Wallace estate, through the opera, through Roddy's office. And it was this huge mammoth and it was there and it was tangible and you could touch it and it was real. And just five years ago, it was a play in a black box theater in Hollywood. But yeah, that, that scene you're talking about was a, a bunch of green screens, and at the very end, we we made a fake shadow box with a real person in it.
2: Yeah, it's just stunning. Talk about your entrance into the world of immersive theater. What was the first time you experienced it for yourself, and when did you just get into it as an
3: audience member first, I assume? I have these these snaps. I don't know if, what causes them, but like I had one after Saw where I was like, I can't do another Saw film, I can't do it, because I had done three movies back to back to back, and they were all kind of the same, and at that point... I was no longer directing, they were directing themselves. The Saw films are such well-oiled machines. The people know what they're doing so perfectly. By Saw 4, it did itself. I didn't do it. I was there, I yelled action, but so there was no challenge to me. And so I wanted to be challenged. I wanted to do something that was risky and and ballsy and, and cool punk rock and so I wanted to do Repo because what's more punk rock than going from Saul to directing Paris Hilton and Sarah Brightman <laughs> that shit could kill a career and so uh, I wanted to play Russian roulette with my career because that gave me excitement and it, it put stakes, there were stakes if I did that, there were no stakes on the Saul film they, Lionsgate would not let Saul fail I wanted to fail. I wanted the ability that, that there would be no safety net. I did uh, Repo and it was awesome. And then I did three other films. I started to feel the same thing. I started to feel like there's nothing new here. I wanted to do something new and original. And I kind of broke after, around the Baron's time, I had like a mental snap. And I went to New York and I did Sleep No More, which was the first one of them that I did. If you've not been to Sleep No More, it's, it's, it's an amazing experience. Wrong. The first time I went, I hated it. I didn't understand it. I don't think I was prepared for it, but basically for those that don't know, Sleep No More is a site-specific immersive work that basically you walk in and you're watching the play Macbeth, but it's not Macbeth. It, there's no talking in it, and it's done over multiple floors, multiple actors, and you as a participant get to choose who you're going to follow. So you're going to follow Lady Macbeth, Macduff, whoever that is, you're, you're going to follow them, and they each have a storyline going on. So no two people are theoretically getting the same experience because you're rushing and following people. And and it was this amazing experience. The first time I saw it, I didn't get it. I, I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. And I posted something online and I said, I think I saw something really cool, but I don't think I'm smart enough to understand what it was. Maybe five minutes later, I saw a response pop back up. And this is on Facebook. And it says, are you still in New York? question mark And I didn't recognize the name. And I was like, who is this? And I clicked it. The profile picture was her in cosplay. And I forgot what the cosplay she was doing, but I clicked on her photos. And then I see an entire blind mag from Repo photo session of her cosplaying it. And I responded back, I am. And she says, I'm one of the costume designers of Sleep No More. Come back again and let us show you the right way to see it. And so the next night I went back to Sleep No More. And her and her sister, Alex and Julia, are the costume department of Sleep No More. And they walked through it with me and they would push me in the right places. And again, if you haven't been to Sleep No More, this won't make sense to you. But as you're, it, it's like a video game. If you stand in the right place, things called one-on-ones happen for you, where they pull you out and they put you in this special environment and they do a scene just for you. Oh, cool. And and so there's 300 people running around and then all of a sudden I'm by myself in a room having a monologue done just for me. When I left sleep no more that night, I lived in tears. And that's that's not I'm not exaggerating, I left in literal tears because I feel like I watched art, real art happening. For the first time in I don't know how long. Wow. And so I left. I went and did two more shows that week. Then she fell, which is another, probably my favorite immersive show. And another one in New York. I went back home and I called my agent and I said... I'm done I don't want to do movies again I want to do immersive theater and he said you're fucking crazy that, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not entertaining this conversation and then I went and did another film Abattoir and I had a really bad time on Abattoir just it, a lot of things happened there was a death on Abattoir our first day he died oh, no. um, not no. during filming he died but it was even sadder he was there on like a Thursday he flew home to see his family and died he had a heart, a heart attack and he just had like a brand newborn and then there was oh. there was a heart attack that happened after that with someone else and it, just, it, was a, it was a very kind of bad experience for me, just because it also took two and a half years to get Abattoir made. So when Abattoir ended, I said, I got to do something different. Called my agent back and I said, I'm, I'm done fucking around. I'm, I'm opening an immersive theater company and I want it to be the game. they he said, what do you mean the game? And I said, like the David Fincher film, the game. Mm-hmm. I want to do that for real. And I don't think they believed me. And I ended up connecting with this producer, Gordon Bijelanek and I pitched him the idea. And Gordon said, give me a week and I'll find you the money. A week later, he had the money in a bank and we started prep on the Tension Experience, which was a year long, it's called ARG, which is an alternate reality game. And that means that you interact with the world in the real world. And to give you an example of what that would mean is, it's like um, when we launched the Tension Experience, it launched as a website. It just had weird quotes from Charles Manson or Anton LaVey or Crowley. It had these weird quotes. If you looked at the source code on the website, You'd have to know how to go to the source code. Buried in the source code was a telephone number that said, help me. And that was it. Maybe five people found the the number. And when you called it, we had an actor to answer the phone 24-7 for like a four-day period. She would pick up the phone and she would say, write this down immediately and repeat it back to me. And she gave them an address, a time and a date. And next thing we knew, we had hundreds of phone calls coming to that number. And we had scheduled something like, I don't know, 100 people. To show up to a warehouse on a particular time at a particular date and when they showed up to the warehouse they would walk into in the middle of this cult thing going on and they would get a clue to the next place and it took place in the real world and it meant We used emails, websites, phones, bars, you name it. We used it bus stops that you would literally show up to a bus stop and you'd have to interact with an actor and get on a bus and go like four stops with them. And you never knew when it was going to happen, how it was going to happen. And it lasted for nine months. Uh, And and I mean, we did, we did crazy shit, shit that was, I mean, looking at it now, it was stuff like Michael Douglas's thing from the game for maybe, I don't know, two or 300 die hard participants they were in all Los Angeles. And what they would do is they would go on Facebook and tell these crazy stories that would happen to them. And then their friends wanted to get in, but it was too late. The game had started. But what we did was we all ended at what was called the Tension Experience, which was a site-specific 50,000 square foot warehouse that was open to the public. And when you walked in, it was a three-hour experience and your choices dictated the journey. So no two people got the same thing. You would, mm-hmm. you would come in groups of 10 and then almost immediately you were broken apart And it was basically a series of mind fucks that you would have to make decisions on. And it affected people in a way that... Any movie I had done never had because these people had been with the characters for a year, a year. The story was a, a, about a girl who was in a cult and the family would basically contact you, literally call you on the phone and tell you to meet them for dinner. And they would meet you at a diner and talk to you about their daughter. And they did this over <laughs> and over again. Jeez. And so you would form a bond <laughs> with this family and then they would call you and they would email you. And then the cult would call you and say, stop what you're doing. Stop immediately what you're doing right now. And then the girl would call you. And then the next thing you know, you're in this middle of this conspiratorial thing. It felt real to these people. And so the reactions are real. And so they would fall in love with the characters or they would hate certain characters. And so by the very end, when it ended after a year, it felt important. It felt like we did something important and it was fucked up and there were weird things that were going on. And yes, I wouldn't recommend it for everyone, but for those that went through it, it was a transformative experience, if you let it be. Hmm. And that changed me, as think, as an artist. And that's now kind of an addiction that I have is to continue to do these things. And so after the tension experience, we did the lust experience, which the idea was Stanley Kubrick's eyes wide shut. What if you could walk into that building? And so we made a sex club and we had a very risque immersive <laughs> experience. Fidelio. Yeah, yeah. the secret word.
1: <laughs> we had a secret
3: word and you could walk in the middle of a sex club. It was intense and it was crazy. And then we did that. We just finished one this year called Theater Macabre, which is a throwback to Grand Gagne which was a big thing in the paris in the 20s -hmm. well actually before that and went all the way to the 50s and it was you got to walk into this theater of death and it was uh no two experiences were the same five people walk in and they got five completely separate two-hour storylines just for them and it's something that a movie can't give you and it's something that it stays with you longer than a film so that's kind of my entrance into the immersive theater world how do you (laughs) how do you direct i mean Where are you
2: in terms of the Tension Experience launch? This is a year-long thing, and there's these interactions going with characters and people in the real world. Where are you? Is there someone monitoring this or directing it? How do you maintain control over or some sort of sense of control over what's happening?
3: What what I think the hardest thing for me is there was only three of us doing it. It was Gordon, who I mentioned, and my writing partner and co-creator, Clint Sears. The three of us, when Tension Experience launched, I wanted it to exist on its own merits and not because it was the saw director. So, I took no credit and we put did not put my name anywhere. And up until the week that it opened or two weeks before it opened, no one knew who was behind it. And it was kind of awesome because as it, it started to build steam, you would see things like, oh, it's J. j Abrams doing this new thing or oh, it's a new <laughs> huge it was it was <laughs> yeah. three guys doing it by themselves behind the and it was how we communicate no actors knew who we were. how we'd get an actor is we would cast them on backstage and they would get sent a burner cell phone. They never knew who they were talking to a lot of the <laughs> wow So you they know? had their own immersive experience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a lot of times we would hire security to basically watch uh, to make sure that things would go the way that we thought they would go and then we'd have people that were in the know in cars surrounding the event to make sure that like I would be in a car a lot of times mask. It was done like that. When we did the actual event though, we had something like eighty security cameras. We'd have two security cameras in every room because in a situation like that you have to be monitored just for protection of the actors as well. Every there had to be monitors on everything. And I would sit yeah, I would sit in front of a huge bank of eighty cameras watching. And it was awesome. And it was such a thrill because every day was different. As like a movie. And movies are mundane. They're awesome. But you do the same thing over and over again. And it's like you shoot one page might take you, you know, a day and a half to shoot one page doing the same second over and over again. With this, you can never predict an audience member and how they're going to react and what they're going to say. And so all the actors were on earpieces. I was listening into the rooms and then we would watch the cameras and, and just manipulate these people going through it and the thing which is it's that i didn't realize it's not a haunted house there's nothing scary there's no one jumps out and screams boo at you you are put in uncomfortable situations that you have to communicate and talk to the actor to get the next piece of the story.
2: The one experience we've all shared in this room that is that I could even say is a little bit similar would be delusion.
3: Yeah, John Braver. John Braver who, yeah, John Braver's In fact, it's so funny. As Do you guys, has he ever been on the show? Yeah. yeah. As I was pulling up, John Braver was calling me, and so I had to hit end on the thing. Oh, that's no. funny. John Braver's one of uh He was my, I want to say mentor coming into this. So I had done Delusion. I think it was the year that Neil Patrick Harris produced it. And I was a huge fan. And I called John afterwards and he was so accommodating. He was like, no, no, it's great. Let's meet for coffee. And uh, John and I kind of talked and I just picked his brain about everything. I was like, you know, how did this happen? And how do you do this? And him and I kind of formed a, a friendship. And then the next year when he was doing his next show, he asked if I wanted to go location scout with him. And I said, yes, I want to go location scout with you. I went with him and we went and looked at a bunch of locations and I was like, I want to do my own. And I was like, don't be, it's not going to be like what you're doing. It's going to be extreme and it's going to be like the game. And he talked to me about it. He was like, well, have you thought about this, this or this? And then the next year, I called him and I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do the game. I'm going to do it. And he was like, all right, let's do it. And he's been a very huge champion of me. He uh, was at Theater Macabre when I launched it last year. I've been to all of his shows. So he's been a very good friend for me trying to navigate this world.
0: With so many moving parts and something like that, especially the first time you did it, what was the biggest challenge of
3: actually pulling off something on that scale? Something that, that happened this weekend that I don't think is... It, it, it's, still, it's still fresh. Or this might be a little not fully formed. I was on a panel this last week in San Francisco. John Braver was there and it was basically called IDS immersive design summit. And it was a summit of speakers to talk about immersive theater and the, the furtherment of immersive in entertainment. I was one of the speakers on it. And I realized that trust is a huge issue right now. And specifically what we do, because we blur the lines of reality. You don't know what's real and what's not real. And there's a huge contingent of people that want guardrails. They want to be able to see these are the confines of the experience. This is what they are. And so you always know you're on a ride. You always know that you're in uh, the haunted mansion or whatever that is. We don't do that. Our thing is very much, you don't know what's real. You don't know what's not real. It rubs some people the wrong way because I think that there is a group of people, thinkers out there that very much want there to be a clear defined this is fake, it's not real, but I'm going to go back to what introduced me into one of my favorite movie going experiences as I was living in Florida, going to film school and I got recruited to go to a first screening of a movie and it was a test screening and it was still the director's cut. It had not gone to the studio yet and it had no title. And I remember sitting in the theater and just all we knew was that we're watching a documentary of a film. And it ended up being Blair Witch. But this is before it was Blair Witch. There was no Blair Witch. It was a documentary we were watching. And I remember sitting there in the theater and I'd never heard a trailer, never heard a word about it. And this was maybe a year before it actually came out. I sat there when the movie ended and I didn't move. I felt like I was gut punched. I felt mad and I felt enraged and I I felt I wanted to know more. They thanked us all for coming. We had filled out a little questionnaire and that's all I thought about for the next week. Now, a year later, it becomes Blair Witch, and it's everywhere. But I don't know how my experience with Blair Witch would be different if I knew it was a movie, and I knew these were actors, and even that campaign that they put out, which was awesome, you knew it was a campaign. I didn't. I saw it raw, and it had a lasting impact. It's still one of my favorite movie experiences. So I wanted to try to create an experience that had the same effect. Obviously, we had insurance, and we had permits, and we had off-duty officers, and we had all that. But the illusion was we didn't. The illusion was anything can happen. So I think the biggest challenge was is getting people to trust us, the belief that I'm going to go on this ride with you and I can stop it if I want because it got intense. Like I'll give you like we had um the ability one of the things that we did, we had number spoofers and email spoofers. So let's say that I had been working you'd been in the experience for uh, 6 months. I knew who your wife was. It's not hard to get phone numbers. So what we would do is we could call you from your wife's number. And you would pick up thinking it's your wife or your best friend, but it was us. And uh, so, you know, that that is very much uh, that's very much a a boundary and a line because people are like, that's my wife. That's my kid. You can't do that. And so waivers were a huge thing. You had to know what you were signing up for. And Mm -hmm. so there was a very long back and forth with lawyers about what could we do and what couldn't we do? How do we have to get rid of, um, you know, once someone gives us information, destroy it? How do we get rid of that? How long can we keep it? So the legalities was a huge thing. And then the clear lines within the waiver of what we could and couldn't do and how to stop it if it got too out of control. And luckily, you know, we've been very lucky. The participants have been great and there's been no issues. But I think that's been the hardest challenge about this whole thing is that line of wanting to push the envelope and wanting to do something like I felt doing Blair Witch, but doing it in a real world and real space like they did in the game wow yeah Yeah. so
7: for the participants when it's over is it clear as day for them that it's (laughs) over or do you continue investing with them for the next six months
3: (laughs) when we did the arg there was a safe there was there was basically emails they could email or numbers they can call to stop it at any time so let's say it got too intense for you you could you could email us and the minute you said over we immediately deleted your file and that was you got there was no like sec if you said over we would amass information on you through the entire plane of the game and so we would know Anything that you had done in the game or anything that you would answer to us, the minute you said it's over for, if you said I'm done, it got deleted right then and there. But if you did not do that, we continued. And, and part of the understanding was it was 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Not that we would, but we could. I remember, One of my favorite events that we did was um, in the middle of the ARG, people were really into it and they formed this great community and the community still exists today. These friends, they, they formed friendships and bonds over this storyline. One of our kind of main players was having a birthday party and we found out about it and we found out where he lived. And, uh, we drove there with the cast and they, they crashed the party <laughs> and it was, it was awesome because, uh, they're all there and they're talking about it and they're talking about tension and there was a knock at the door and it was the girl that was inside the cult and she walked in and she's like, are you going to invite me in? And she just walked in the door and she did this awesome monologue and everyone's like, oh my God, this is happening in our house. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I think what was great about that and what was awesome about that is you never knew if, if you knew that we would crash your birthday party. You didn't know where else we would crash. Even that, that very simple thing of showing up, the planning to go into something like that, we had to have a security thing. We had, she had to have a, a tell to get out. Like If it got too intense, she had to have a tell to get out. We had to be able to get her out that quickly. It's very small interactions, took a lot of planning. And so it was a very long, laborious process. But as a again, as an artist, as someone who wants to tell stories, nothing has come close to me doing that. It's been the best experience of my life.
4: <laughs> see, I'd love to see a documentary about how that's made and all the planning that goes into it, like yeah. that would be something really yeah, fun.
3: Totally. Did I, you document the whole thing? I should have brought you a book. There's a book that we did. I'll send you guys. It's a really cool hardcover coffee table book called the making of the OOA. And the OOA was the fake cult. And it basically goes through the whole process of, of how we did it and why we did it and things that could have happened if things would have gone a different way. The audience <laughs> wow, controlled wow. the narrative completely, which meant Clint was an, always one step behind the audience. So we would watch how the audience reacted. And it was like a soap opera happening in real time. If the audience liked certain characters, they were written up. They didn't like characters they were killed off. If certain people became problematic, we would write them out. Meaning if like you as a participant were problematic and we didn't trust you, we would never engage with you anymore. So it was a constant 24 hour day job, never stopping. The people are written out. Do they know they're written out? We had a very zero tolerance policy. Like if you ever touched an actor, we didn't even tell you that was it. Done. You're never going to be used again. But there's still people out there waiting for that phone call. Waiting for that phone call. (laughs) (laughs) No, we we were very lucky. Only a few times did we have to get involved and intervene into, and actually what I would call breaking the fourth wall or lifting up the curtain and basically saying, hey, no, you can't do that. Mentally, I think is the biggest thing you have to worry about is because people form bonds with these characters. If you see a movie... You're watching a movie for 90 minutes, and you walk away, and you're eating popcorn, and there's other people around you, and you're checking your phone, and you, you can't connect. But if you are sitting in a bar with the lead actor, and you're talking, and you're sharing a beer, and you guys are right there, that's a connection. And that's a real connection. And so I think that for us, the, our biggest challenge is, is to make sure the safety of the actor and the safety of the participant, because you're in a, you're in a real space. I think that was our biggest concern at all times. And so we would let people go if we just had bad vibes. It very much had to be a trust-based game. That was something that we kept very... And there was maybe one or two people that we just felt made us uncomfortable. And if it made us uncomfortable, it wasn't worth risking what we were trying to do. Mm. So that was... But we were very lucky and we had such a great group of people that participate in it, made it work.
4: Do you like going to haunts like Knots and all that? I
3: do. But I'll tell you, I get bummed out by Universal because I grew up on Haunted Houses. That's that's what yeah. started my love for the macabre. And they're so elaborate and they're so big in Kansas City. You know, you would go and you'd wait for 40 minutes to go in this haunted house that would take you an hour to go through and there's hundreds of actors and you're by yourself and it's scary. When you go to Universal, you wait two and a half hours to go on a yes. maybe 60 second attraction where in front of you, you're seeing people jump out and behind you, you're seeing people jump out and there's no individuality. You don't have a a singular you experience. You're an experience with a group of people jumping out. The set design, amazing. The masks, amazing. The, the all of that is amazing. But I'm talking about from a haunted house. Yeah, I, I would go to Universal just to be there and see the insanity of the. I love walking around Universal, you know, not necessarily going to the haunted houses, mm. but seeing this the chaos of the creatures running with chains. That's
4: great. Yeah, the smell of the, the chainsaws sm- <laughs> and the smoke. Fog. Yeah, the fog and everything.
3: Yes. The actual experience of going to the haunted house themselves, unless you have a front of line pass and you're there like at the very beginning when it opens you're not surrounded by a million people it's not my thing I totally I agree that one-on-one saying. and that
2: was the thing when we went through Delusion is being able to get that experience that one-on-one everything is amped up to an insane degree you can't even describe unless yep. you've actually been through it right
3: well that's just it I think with Delusion and all of these uh, there's another great company out there called Creep who does Willows if you guys haven't seen Willows I highly recommend it it's a dinner theater basically where it's you and I think 10 people and this great man And the characters all have these crazy stories and you have to follow them around. When you're able to interact one-on-one with a person and you can't hide behind your cell phone and you're forced to be present and be there in the moment, something opens up inside of you. And I don't remember the last time that I watched a movie that I wasn't distracted by a hundred things. It's called life. You're checking Twitter or Instagram or changing a diaper or feeding a baby. You're just kind of like out a little bit. But with these things, when you're in delusion, you're in delusion. You can't be doing other shit. You have to be there. You have to be. Solid. Did you guys go to Blue Blade? The last one he did. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did. I mean, you have to be. You know, you have to be in that moment, or the Nazis are going to get you. Or that's it's, right. It's, I think that that's why, to me, immersive is so important, is it forces you to be present and it forces human connection and interaction, which in a, in a world of technology, we're losing.
2: Your latest film, Saint Agatha, had its origin story roughly starting with the tension experience.
3: It did I credit the success of tension to the actors like Clint Gordon and I were the puppet masters but the actors made it 100% real and um one of the things that these things are very expensive to put on that the tension experience was an extremely expensive endeavor and we had something like 70 actors and so when you have 70 actors like and we can only put through 100 people a night it's very hard to even break even on something like this. No one was able to retire on doing tension. None of these actors and they were putting their, their life into this, like nine months of this, this ARG and then going to this experience. So when I got offered St. Agatha, I immediately said, if I can cast the tension actors. So the coolest story is the girl, Sabrina. Mm. Yeah. um, It was amazing. Yeah. (laughs) So So good. So she had moved to LA maybe two years before I met her from Switzerland. So she is Swiss German. And she has no accent that you can hear, wow. but she's Swiss German. And so she speaks more eloquently in her second language than I can even do in my first. One. <laughs> um, and so she was the lead of the tension experience. She was the girl in the cult that you're trying to save. I just fell in love with her as a person. She was the sweetest, kindest, most passionate person about helping me make tension real. She would always kind of talk to me about, and It it's kind of cool. I think that when our first meeting, I didn't tell her who I was. I, I again, I remember I never told anyone anything about me except her, because she was the lead, and there was there was no way for me to hide it that long from her. Mm-hmm. So we met. Originally, she met me and knew me as a guy named Ellis Gordon. That's how we communicated, and eventually I met with her. And I said, you know, I did... Um, I was like, I'm actually a film director. I've done a couple of movies, the Saw movies. She grabbed her phone. She does this, and she put it up, and it's her dressed as Jigsaw last Halloween. Oh! Yeah. So uh, <laughs> cool. I knew it was fake, Nice. But um, she would always ask me about getting involved in horror movies, and throughout our entire kind of getting to know each other, It was always talking about movies. And so she'd never been in a film before. And so when St. Agatha came, I said, she's St. Agatha. And I was like, I want her to be St. Agatha. I cast a lot of the ancillary players in the film as other people that were instrumental in making Tension a success. The character, his name is Miles Crawford. And in this, he's the doctor. He's the very, very tall black man who's like the doctor that's downstairs. One of my favorite human beings in the entire world. He was, again, one of the main characters of Tension that made it real for me. So uh, he was the, one of the first guys that said, listen, I'm doing this movie. I need you for it. And we kind of went through the tension cast and brought as many as we could with us in my career. I want to work with people. I like, I want to surround myself with people I like. And so I was able to populate St. Agatha with people that
4: I just like, where are the keys in the coffin from St. Agatha?
8: <laughs> just just <laughs> asking for a friend. Uh, just a friend.
3: Uh, yeah, that, uh, St. Agatha, yeah. so I told you, I don't know, I was telling someone this today and it was actually, I thought it was you, but it actually was. No, it was you, who I buy all the props. Yes. yes. So one yeah, of the talk things, about yeah, that. So yeah, so one of the things I was mentioning when I first came in is that as as uh, after the Saw films, I've got this new thing that I do as a filmmaker is I pay for the props, or at least the cool ones, out of pocket. So when a, when a movie is is says, okay, we need these 50 hero props, I'll buy 25 of them and then rent them back to the production. And the reason why is I want to steal them when the shoot is over. But it's not stealing, I guess, if you buy them. No, it's not at all. Take them with you. When St. Agatha happened, I didn't do that. Because St. Agatha happened so quickly. Tension ended in 2016, the end of 2016. And I was shooting this in the beginning of 2017. So it, everything happened so quickly that I did not do that with the props. So I only got two props out of that. I got Mother Superior's book that she walks around oh, with.
4: That's amazing. And yes. I got
3: I collect antiques like like your radio, and I, I I collect antique phones. So I took all the phones, which is a weird thing. Oh, to that's take. cool. That's really <laughs> cool. Though. I took all the phones. There there's some other stuff that I took. But I did not get any of the keys from the coffin.
4: <laughs> <laughs> that was a cool
3: coffin though, right? That was
4: so cool. That was amazing. I, I thought for sure you must have had Was that thing constructed
3: for the... Yeah. yeah. We, uh, actually, you know what? I say that now and I don't know. Molly Coffey, who was the production designer, everything happened so rapidly that I would literally show up to set some days. and It was the first time I'd seen things. We started with a house. We found this amazing house that was literally dilapidated and falling apart. So like there was huge holes in the ceiling where water was dripping down, which we just kept. Yeah. And the wallpaper. I'm a huge wallpaper. Yes, I, mean, I love the wallpaper and we kept all the wallpaper and in fact as we were shooting the movie the house actually started to crumble around us because it was so old the film crew has 80 people in it 90 people the weight of us taking dollies up and down stairs caused the actual foundation to crack and so throughout the process of the filming the amazing wallpaper started to disintegrate because of all the cracking so we would actually have to photocopy and photoshop new wallpaper on no the way. old on the old <laughs> wallpaper <laughs>
2: Uh, the house was abandoned when no, you guys found it? Was, it or? No,
3: I think it was actually a, nat- what's it called when they can't tear it down? Uh, historical? Historical yeah, landmark. Yeah. I think it's a historical landmark. The house was so old. No, it, it was uh, It was not torn down. In fact, I still think someone lives there. And I felt so bad. Because literally when we got there, we noticed there were cracks on the walls. But by the very end, the cracks had quadrupled in size. Yeah. Literally, we had to do paint outs in the movie where you can't see it because the the walls were just falling down around us. Well, since
4: the house was so old, (laughs) did anything like creepy happen?
3: No, but I did have something on another movie, which is by far my worst film. I credit part of that to me having a temporary break in sanity, which uh, was 1111, where a series of the most insane shit took place in this house. That when we were filming it and I was sending back footage to the foreign sales company who was financing it, they said, we're not putting this out. This looks staged. This is absolutely not real. We're not doing this. And I was like, it's not staged. This is all happening. The behind the scenes was a million times better than what was ever on screen. And I'll give you just the quick version of it. But we basically, I shot it in Barcelona. I wanted an old looking mansion. And everywhere we looked in Barcelona, the architecture didn't work. It just didn't, it didn't work for me. And they finally showed me these pictures. And I, I remember looking at the pictures and saying, this is the house. And I saw them kind of look at each other. And I don't speak Spanish or Catalan is what they speak. I don't speak, I don't, I don't understand what they were saying. They started talking rapidly, but my wife does. And I said, she asked how the work, how, how the day was. And I said, something was really weird. She was over there with me. And I said, they were really weirded out by the house that I picked. And she said, why? And I said, I have no fucking clue. I don't understand what they were saying. <laughs> And so the next day we went to the house and when we got there, there was a man who was the this sounds like, it sounds, I hear myself talking about it and it seems fake. There was a man who was the caretaker of the house and when he got there, there there's a huge gate around the entire house and he would not go inside the house and he opened it up and he basically opened the gate and he wouldn't go inside the house and I heard him kind of talking very heatedly to the producers. And the producer said it's fine, come on, come on, He's just gonna wait outside. And it still it didn't click with me what was going on. We did the walkthrough and it was weird, but I didn't feel anything weird about the house. That basically the house was empty, no furniture in it, but there were mattresses and there were candles and there were masquerade masks. And we found out that the house recently was used to run out for parties, sex parties, and they there was a there was a weird bondage sex club that uses that location and there was a lot of <coughs> weird artifacts left over mainly mattresses but whatever but we noticed in every entrance above the door there was an h and and uh the crew was weirded out by it but i didn't understand what it was and they're again talking and i didn't and i kept saying to my first ad what what are they talking about is like it's nothing it's it's superstition it's nothing we ended the walk through and when we ended it the caretaker was in a pretty heated thing with the producers and we'd seen neighbors coming kind of outside and staring about this. What are these people doing here? So the next day I said to Laura, can you come with the next location? With Can you please just let me know what the fuck's going on? Laura comes with me on the next uh, location scout. And she listens and she says, they don't want to tell you that this is a cursed house. And I said, what does that mean? She said that it was the, the legend is that the house was taken over by this cult called umo and you can look it up spelled u-m-m-o their symbol is an h it's a fascinating story and i'm going to screw it up please if you're listening to this and you, and you know about umo don't get <laughs> mad at me for screwing it up but the basic conceit of umo was two guys reported that they were visited by a uh a terrestrial being or no an extraterrestrial being that basically said that if they don't live by these tenants they're going to come wipe out humanity and they they produced these documents. I think called the UMO papers, and they were pretty nefarious and basically it called for ritualistic sacrifice, killing all this other crap. And this was all, it started in Madrid and it started spreading the UMO papers and it got into Barcelona and people started being sacrificed and their people started being killed in i guess appeasing this umo paper and then years after this happened those two guys came forward and said no you dumb motherfuckers this was a sociology experiment about how easy it is to make oh. gullible people believe no. <laughs> whatever want." Blame. but at that moment <sighs> umo had become bigger than them and what? so they couldn't stop it so they come this is not real they're like this is fake we made this here's the proof we made it here's the whole story the house that we were in was an umo compound and so the H's were from the cult. So this goes back and this is a true story. I swear on my life, I'm not making this up. So my wife hearing this this whole craziness says to the production designer, you guys are acting like a bunch of little bitches. Like, and she walks over <laughs> yeah. and she takes down the H and she throws it on the ground. And she was like, see, nothing. And so Laura, my wife, walks around and just starts yanking these H's down. And everyone, it was it was something out of the movie, they're all staring at her, which is this just I can't believe she's doing this. She was in the emergency room twelve hours later, hallucinating and at hundred and three degree temperature, she was bedridden for three days. And here's the here's the kicker. This is the kicker, and I I, I I hear again I hear myself, and I'm like, you sound so stupid saying this. She had hallucinations of this thing, this red creature. She said it wasn't the devil; it was this red creature. And the doctor said it was due to her fever. And the she she said she's she's just having a bad dream. It's blah blah blah. She had vivid hallucinations. Vivid. That same thing that I'm experiencing with my wife happened to numerous crew members throughout the shooting. And when we got home, we have unexplainable footage that makes no sense to this day of what we captured. And it's subtle things, which makes it scarier to me. And there's there's something you can watch online that we have one thing that we release that you can see about the house and the cult. And it's it's insane. But one of the stories is Joe White, the DP who did Repo, is an agnostic. He believes in... He's an atheist. He believes in nothing. He hears me talking about this crazy house and the crazy energy. And he's like, you guys are just being ridiculous. You've bought into the hype. And he shows up to the house, he gets to, he gets to Barcelona and he shows up to the house and immediately he stops and he calls me over and he goes, I'm not, no, I'm not shooting here. And I said, what? And he's like, I've just, something's not right about this house. I was like, Joe, we have to shoot here. He, he comes back inside. And he's like, fine, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to buy into the hype. You've got me weirded in my own head. Second day of shooting, Joe White is standing there by himself at the foyer and a light dislodges from the ceiling and hits him in an angle that makes no sense at all. He was sent to the emergency room. A second AD was pushed down the stairs, or he says pushed down the stairs when he was there. The first one there by himself, broken ankle. Um, the script supervisor was sent to the hospital after a hallucination, seeing basically the same thing that my wife did. But here's my favorite of them all. This one is my favorite. I never saw. I will say that I never saw anything while I was there. This is all. But my favorite was. Uh, there was a one of the Spanish producers comes running down the stairs, maybe on our fourth or fifth day there, and he's screaming, just, just screaming. It was translated as it's happening. So I'm hearing the translation as it's happening. He was upstairs in a room and he just felt something and he looked at the ceiling and there was a a a face that was in the ceiling and he was like, I'm I'm not getting paid enough. I'm I'm not doing this. And this guy was a respectable producer. He produced the movie Perfume, if you've ever seen it. Like he's a respectable producer. And so all of these insane things were happening. During the course of it And I got so wrapped up in it That I couldn't focus on anything So the movie suffered greatly You can watch the movie And see for yourself It's a terrible film But it was so There was so much Insane things happening While we were filming the movie Wow <sighs> holy jeez wow. and just hearing me talk about it now I'm like oh you sound so stupid but no you don't. it sounds no, it, it, like you're pitching a great movie I was like hey, <laughs> make that movie I was gonna say after the movie was cut I was like that's the movie I should have made <laughs> <laughs> that that is my that is my super. it also sounds clip. like it could be not that it is
0: but it could be like a Scooby-Doo level scam from the emergency room oh no <laughs> everyone care. ends up in
3: the emergency room um, th- yeah it's uh it's there, a there was a place. lot of there was a lot of uh there was a a lot of people you know it's the funny thing about spain though um which i'm not used to here they have two things there that we don't have here on our movie sets is every day we go to lunch they would have a bottle of wine mm. and they would just smoke pot openly just regularly and so i think those two things also didn't help the, <laughs> the safety issues of people having lights dropping on them and oh my God. Um, but it Jeez. was a it was a it was a terrifying three months over there that is crazy.
2: Maybe someone's over there developing. It was part of the El Tensione right. experience.
8: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is incredible. What is next for you in terms of film, immersive theater? What's coming down
3: the... P- Raising the p- my kids.
2: Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
3: yeah. Uh, no, I just finished a film with Maggie Q and Luke Hemsworth called The Death of Me. It's in post now. In fact, I, we start mixing it and doing color starting on Thursday. That will be the next thing that comes out. Knock on wood. I'm excited. I'm uh, currently attached to a pretty cool film that people will know. I can't announce it yet. I'm I'm very superstitious, but a very cool horror property. And then doing more immersive stuff. For me, I think that my passion now is in immersive theater. It's just such a, a feeling that I can't articulate correctly, but it's it's something that if you do it and you find a great one, it can affect you and change you. And so to be a part of that movement is something that's important to me. So to continue to do immersive theater. But the next big thing is is the death of me, which is going to be coming out.
2: Now, the immersive theater experiences, as far as I know, a lot of them kind of, kick off around halloween season right around the fall is usually when like theater macabre was in yeah
3: we're going to stop doing that because we don't want to compete and the thing is is that we have two big things that happen with tension and theater macabre and lust we're not scary what happens to you can be intense but it's not scary at all in fact in some respects it's worse because it's emotional and i think emotional sticks with you longer than someone jumping out we don't want to compete with halloween we don't want to compete with the delusions and the, you know, the 13th door or whatever that thing is. I, I don't want to compete with those people. So we're going to try to go on off seasons when things aren't happening. Because I think that we live in LA, we live in this this huge epicenter of entertainment, but to have things like this open year-round would be awesome and not have to rely on just going to these things during Halloween. So I think on our next one, we did partner with uh, the Russo brothers, Joe and Anthony Russo, who directed the Avengers films. Right. Uh, they've got the new Avenger movie coming out. They bought into our company and are taking us to Las Vegas, the tension experience to Las Vegas. We are moving now in the 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 idea was always Cirque Soleil that we wanted to start tension and then we wanted to do lust and then adrenaline and then nefarious and have different shows operating in different cities. And so they're going to take not the ARG, but the actual show show to Las Vegas. Do you know when the target is for that? Well, Joe's been a little busy with a little, this little independent film. Uh, so uh, <laughs> End game.
7: Yeah, so um,
3: he, he just texted me and I think they've, they have another week or two of post and he's on a press tour. And when he's back from the press tour, I think it's when it's all men running. But I think that the Vegas thing will be the next huge immersive thing, we will launch another show this year, but it will probably not be during Halloween. Are there
7: guidelines for these experiences? For example, like we love these kind of things, we go to them, but there's certain things that, you know, for example, maybe we don't like to get naked or to be tutt. You know what I'm saying? Like, are there guidelines where you can say, well, if you don't like this, then you're not going to like this experience. That that was
3: actually the talk uh, this weekend at the Immersive Design Summit was safety, agency, how do you alert an audience what they're walking into? We're not for everyone, and that's the thing that we've come to grips with is that we are more extreme without being extreme. And when I, we don't, Force you to eat stuff. We don't. There's something called McKayme manner. Like, oh
8: yeah, know, yeah. We're, we're
3: not we're not manner. But their people have different triggers, and that's something that uh, as well that we've come to realize is that what I consider a trigger, you might not, and what you consider a trigger, I would never in a million years think would trigger somebody. So it comes down to the waiver now. That you really you have to look at the waiver and see. We will tell you what's on there. You know, simulated sex, touching. It'll it'll say everything on there. And then there are safe words to stop it at any time. Uh, one thing I do want to try to get into, though, is the tension is its own IP, it's its own brand. We're going to launch other brands that are not this, that are not extreme. I what I love about Delusion is Delusion is an adventure. It's a it's a it's an Indiana Jones esque adventure. So we want to experiment outside of the horror realm, and I think Tension is very much in that realm. But though it's not a haunted house, it, it deals with those type of feelings. So. If you're not into really intense stuff, I would skip tension. But Theater Macabre wasn't like that. Theater Macabre was more fun.
7: That's funny given the name. I know. That <laughs> throws it yeah. off, right?
3: Theater Macabre was cool because you had 12 different storylines and like you could be, they went all the way from PG to hard R. And so you could basically navigate wh- wh- what happened to you and how it happened to you. Oh, interesting. Yeah.
6: As being a horror creator and a horror fan, is there, um, something that's your go-to horror film or experience that you just like your comfort spot or your comfort
3: food i have a couple i don't think that there would ones that most people would even call horror films but to me they are like requiem for a dream is one of those movies that, that always yeah. screwed with me and fucked with me and, and i i think i define horror differently horror is anything that horrifies me or gets under my skin and makes me uncomfortable and so to me that's one of my favorite films is an old film uh, called lady in a cage with olivia de Havilland which I love. And if you haven't seen it, I recommend watch it. It's a, one of the greatest home invasion movies ever. James Caan's first film, I believe his first film. It's amazing. Every year I will try to rewatch the classics and I always stop. Not because they don't hold up because I don't want to ruin the memory of what they wore to me as a kid. Mm. So like I I tried to do a marathon of of Halloween before watching the new Halloween and I stopped not because I didn't love it because I have such fond memories of where I was in that place and time in my, childhood when i saw halloween same thing with nightmare on elm street like i don't want to rewatch them because i don't want to i have memories of freddy krueger i have that i don't want to change it now the things that i love is anthologies and i don't mean anthologies like tales of halloween you like that plug right there (laughs) 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 but like tales from the crypt is something i could watch on repeat every day alfred hitchcock presents tales from the dark side outer limits those type of things i love 'Cause they're single serving things. You know, you you watch them for fifteen or eighteen minutes, however long they were. It's great. And they also help spark ideas. I don't know how many times that I've watched an Alfred Hitchcock presents and be like, Oh shit, if they just did this and this, I'll work that into my own stuff. I love doing that but that's kind of my go-to is I'll literally put on, I have a, it's a crazy thing. I have a, a 600, 700 disc Blu-ray changer. Oh, cool. Um, but it's broken and so I can only push play on it and I can't really change it. <laughs> it's kind of worthless. But, but I, I literally have, I had it all organized. So it's, it's like, it goes from all my anthologies are together. So I'll hit play and like four days later it'll be on like it went from like Tales from the Crypt to Outer Limits, and now it's on some <laughs> ridiculous thing from Canada that aired once, anthology wise. But that—that's the thing that I—I I, I think I find myself watching the most. That and true crime, which uh, it really depresses me. But I love true crime stuff, which is horror in itself. Whatever monsters I create, it, the real world is much scarier. What's your yeah? What's your go-to horror?
6: Oh gosh, you know, it just depends. Kind of like um, kind of like fast food. You know, different things, different appetites. But I mean, I do I like anthologies. I like, I like Black Mirror.
3: Oh, Black Mirror! Yeah. I love.
6: Um, one of my favorite horror films is Carrie. I love that one. Yeah. I love monsters, creatures, anything that's a creature.
3: I got to tell you a, a Carrie story. One of the first people that I spoke to on Mother's Day, from the very, and I talked to her from the phone for two hours. Was I got to talk to Carrie? I so say it was insane for two hours <laughs> on the phone. Wow. That's the thing. I'm gonna at some point. I wanna write a book about the people that I spoke to that were either wrong for the role. I'll give you one more. Was a. Uh, I wanted Crispin Glover originally for to be in Repo. And this is before, it, it was a much different script. The, the three brothers, uh, Roddy, it used to be brothers, Roddy, Pavi, and Luigi, the Largo brothers, they changed. We ended up doing a bunch of rewrites, but I wanted him to be one of those characters. I remember I get a phone call. I never spoke to Crispin in my life, but I reached out to his agent and I sent what we had. And my phone rings and it's Crispin Glover. And he spends about an hour and a half on the phone with me talking about how he should be Repo Man and do it as a... Beat Poet. (laughs)
8: <laughs> and, and, and like I just have
3: these insane calls sometimes with people that I'm like how, how am I on the phone with you and how is this happening right now <laughs> one one night I found myself talking to Tom Waits on the phone for an hour and I was like I'm talking to Tom Waits Jeez, and I kept just wow. saying to myself I'm talking to Tom Waits this is insane this is insane sorry I didn't mean to go off on a tangent or anything but you're <laughs> no. thing those are great stories that's incredible I know
4: <laughs> that's awesome have you seen Anna in the Apocalypse
3: everyone's asked me that and I've not and in fact Spooky Dan who I know has been on your podcast, podcast yes. like, you gotta watch it i have not and i know i should you know having kids is is also completely oh i know it takes me five days to finish i've been watching the man who killed hitler than barefoot for like oh, five right. days now <laughs> right. uh, because again it's like i I wake up with them in the morning and by the time they go to bed i'm so tough and tired yes. so i have a queue of like 95 movies it'll take me the next year and a half to get through and it's on there because everyone tells me it's it's amazing
4: no i i completely understand like
3: how many kids uh, do you have? Four. Oh, I, I don't want to do two, let alone four. It's like an <laughs> army. It's, yeah,
2: yeah. Literally, me. movie watching is exactly that. It takes it's five take, days to watch one. Yeah.
3: yeah. Okay, I have a question: Is is horror lovers and parents? What is it that you guys watch in your house to introduce them to horror? And secondly, how much of your day is spent watching nonsense like Peppa Pig? Or Pops <laughs> Daddy Roll? Pig.
2: Well, Mama with Peppa Pig? Pig, at least you get what Momo in the middle of it asking uh, you your kids to do crazy stuff. <laughs> uh, but
3: what is your? What do you introduce your kids to from a horror standpoint?
4: We've had them watch like Hocus Pocus, Halloween
2: like Town series, the Halloween Town Goosebumps. series, Goosebumps, Goosebumps, yeah, um, like the Jack Black Goosebumps movies, uh, House of the Clock on Its Walls, which is great. Like, those gateway horror films. But, yeah, Hocus Pocus is a classic.
4: And then we'll watch, like, universal horror, like, Black and White, Frankenstein, like, that. Creature
2: from the Black Lagoon, we watched that with the kids, Bride of Frankenstein. What was that one that you, uh, the slightly, like, the Roald Doll movie- that's being remade now with Anne Hathaway, The Witches.
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: That's a good gateway because it's yeah, it's, it's got that uneasiness.
3: I, I've shown <laughs> Henry a lot of stuff. I probably should. He's only four, and he, but he's a very adult four. I know Everyone says that, but he, uh, he's he's watched some stuff that I kind of regret now. Like I showed him Cannibal Holocaust. No. Cannibal. <laughs> yeah,
8: but, no, but but
3: but this is the this is the worst. Is uh, a couple of days ago. So my edit room is in my house. So I have a like a small little theater and that's where I edit out of because I have a the client monitor is, is the movie screen so I sit and watch it real time Henry came home early from school and we were doing a playback and the movie was so loud I didn't realize that he had opened the door and so he had opened the door during this is the new movie Death of Me we were watching the playback of it and he saw a pretty graphic thing and I turned over and I look at him and I see him and he goes daddy what is that <laughs> and, I mean, and I was like first thing do not tell mom and you know, I him on the podcast it's like, do not tell mom it's funny because uh, being in the horror world, he's exposed and around so much of this. He's around yeah. body parts. He's around. And it's cool watching him grow up because now he loves the macabre and that's what he wants to wear. So like the, the shirts that he wants to wear to school are all scary, spooky shirts. I can't wait to see what happens in the next five or 10 years with him because as you guys were mentioning earlier, since he's been exposed to it for so young, it, I think it, it hits him differently than it will his friends. His friends are scared yeah. of what I find nothing. Henry has no reaction to that anymore. So I'm excited what's going to happen to Henry. He will be making the next Cannibal Holocaust. Right. <laughs>
4: <laughs> That's so awesome.
2: Go see St. Agatha by whatever means possible and experience the creations of Darren Lynn Bowsman. Your mind will thank you. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was amazing.
3: Amazing. Um, so do you guys have an extra bedroom that I'm going to move in? <laughs> <laughs> I want to play a game. That was the Boo
2: Crew Podcast, episode 42. Special thanks to our guest, Darren Lynn Bowsman. Follow him at Darren Bowsman on Instagram, Darren underscore Bowsman on Twitter, at his website, DarrenLynnBousman.com, and definitely check out everything this guy does, including his latest film, St. Agatha, that we strongly recommend available everywhere now. Till next time, Trev for the Boo Crew saying,
1: see you on the other side. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com tales from the boo crew on facebook and instagram follow us on twitter at tales from the boo the boo crew is tim time bomb leone d'antonio lauren and trevor shand austin wilkin and rachel Tejada. the boo crew is produced by lauren shand chopped and sliced by trevor shand the boo crew is a tsp creation
8: bye